0: and welcome to solid 60 number 66 it is patrick and we're gonna head into a quick rundown of the last two weeks or so's events i'm a little anxious about doing this i know who does listen doesn't mind it so far but you know at some point i'm worried it's going to be like one of those uh, memes you see about people that do those cooking videos and they come in and give you like a 20 minute life history before they actually just tell you the recipe which is what you want well similarly when there's someone telling you how to solve that puzzle on uncharted or whatever video game you're playing and you gotta skip past the first 10 minutes of bullshit hopefully the content is good enough to get people in to listen to that but also hey they want to hear what i got to say as well because it does work for people like say again i'm comparing myself to someone i can never reach the heights of but like a bill burr or someone like that where he'll just talk about the news and whatever's going on and you get to hear tidbits about his life as well. So it can work as long as you're not purporting to deliver one thing and then forcing people to sit through a completely different thing first. As long as I'm upfront about it being, yeah, it's a bit of my life, it's a bit of this, and hey, here's an article I found that I like, or whatever happens to be the flavor of the week. So yeah, for now, until someone completely drums it out of me, this is what I'm going to do. Plus, it's the whole like deer diary thing. Um, two days are right very often so this will have to do if i don't enjoy it then i'll just stop doing it so there's got to be a balance like i will rein it in if it gets ridiculous for some reason like whatever it is that people get back to me and go eh, you could uh dial back x or y then you know i'll definitely look at that anyway it is the 15th of december 2019 the last Sort of two weeks left of this decade so it's something to think about like it's been a long and up and down couple of years it started off pretty well i think 2010 i was still maybe in surrey hills i don't have all the details mapped out that's why it's good to have something like this to just keep track of where things are during a certain time period where i am where like physically and also what's going on with work and family and things like that like for instance today i saw cecilia My younger sister, because she managed to spill some kind of beverage on her laptop a few weeks ago that she'd only had for a little while. But because it was over four months, Bingley wouldn't replace it, so she had to send it off. And she can't go for more than a few days without the internet, apparently. So I had to swoop in there, help her out. Luckily, it was Christmas, so I could kind of... It's not like I get to write it off, but it was like, all right, she'll pay a little bit. Sean will help out. We got a nice little computer. So just over a 1000 bucks for an all-in-one screen. I've never had one before, but it looks kind of handy. You've got the entire computer wrapped around the, the back of the screen. I can't imagine it lets you have anything too speedy or super fast in terms of like really sweet video games but for her just playing a bit of Sims 4 and going online it probably should be fine. And it's only been around for a month or two that model so. Hopefully she managed to keep uh, liquids away from it and have a good time. I did manage to pick up the PS4. This will (laughs) test my real, this is like an ethical conundrum because she's like, it doesn't work. And I tried to be fair at her place, could not get it working. You could hear something, but no picture. Got it home, plugged it into my TV. Of course, worked straight away. Uh, Once you turned it on and off a few times, it apparently hadn't been shut down properly. So it did that whole reboot thing, fair enough. Then I thought, well, it must have been her HDMI cable. Actually tried it, with because I brought everything with me. Still worked, so I don't know what's going on. I think it was just her TV. It's an old Samsung, like she's had it for years. And I don't know, for some reason, that input, that HDMI slot or whatever, is basically out of action. So yay for me, I get a PS4. Unfortunately, I just bought a PS4 like two weeks ago. And uh, been through all the drama of getting that set up. I've got now three separate accounts that I also needed to create with Ubisoft, Activision, some other company, I think Electronic Arts, because, you know, I'm playing Need for Speed, I'm playing Modern Warfare, I'm playing Division 2, and also something called Anthem, I think it was, where you're flying around and it hasn't got great reviews, but I had a bit of fun with it and then put it down, so really got it all basically so I could play games with Lewis, but that hasn't happened. We're in touch a little bit, and then it stopped. Managed to talk to him today for the first time in about a week, and it had to be all on loudspeaker, and it was very weird and, and awkward, so it was just like, oh man, come on, it's just so painful. It's There's so much potential there for, for an awesome like, father-son relationship, we get along so well, we have so much in common, and yeah, I just can't wait for it to kick into high gear when he's a little bit older, and yeah, it's just really frustrating, so bring it on when uh, you know he can speak up a bit more for what he wants, and uh, you know, I'll be just as accepting if he pushes back on something i think he might want like for instance i was like man you need to get amazon the boys is amazing you need to watch that and he's like oh yeah okay he said oh that's a bit like blackmail because i don't know i think if i said if you get it then i'll i don't know where the conversation went exactly but he was he was sort of like oh that's you know maybe i don't want it and i was like well i'm only saying that because i think you'd really enjoy the content he's like oh yeah okay you know i'm glad he can push back a little bit and go look maybe i don't want to do this thing or that thing and i'm fine with it going in any direction if he wants to push back as much as possible on what he wants to do say work-wise or study-wise or anything like that i just want to basically be a support system and not sort of one of those crazy overbearing fathers that pushes them into something they don't want to do and all that sort of thing it's weird i do cut out a lot of the yeah Okay. And I've realized I'm never going to really stop doing that. I'm going to have to keep editing that out because I can't really continue. Maybe it's something you can train, but I can't continue thinking out loud unless I throw in the odd arm and arm and things like that. It's like a lubricating the brain a little bit and leads me into the next part of the conversation. I don't know what I'm going to do if I ever really start doing live banana split episodes with the guys, because it's going to be a lot harder to edit out stuff like that especially the live sections, um, which they're talking about doing. Hopefully we'll meet up again soon. Tuesday, the Taco Bell opens up in Blackdown. So I was you know, throwing that up in the air that maybe we could hang out, have a taco or something and talk about the new artwork, because obviously years later I'm still using the one that I had commissioned of me and Vin. You can't really tell it's me and Vin, but it, it definitely needs to be replaced. And Matt Ferrugia apparently has a really good connection to an artist that will do a piece for a reasonable amount. I believe in paying a fair price for artwork and not getting some like cut rate deal because we're mates, you know, that sort of bullshit. But you want to find someone that's, you know, got skills, but also as an up and comer that can fit within your budget and not totally rip them off either. It's a tricky situation. Obviously, if I was making any money from any of this stuff or even had a halfway decent job, I'll be have to throw some real money at the wall but you've got to work within the constraints we have speaking of work i have been that was a beautiful segue and i had to go and ruin it by addressing that but yeah two weeks now i've been at this job i think actually three but the last three days i've finally been able to drive by myself i thought i'd come in from what i'd heard the in cab you do that for an hour and then you go home that's it you get in cab but nope we did it really quickly in the morning it maybe took 20 minutes of driving around in a circle and i was off i was given a truck with a few crates of packaged beer on it i only bumped one off the side of a trolley at a really tricky spot to get into i had basically to back down a a narrow lane from the top of a quite steep hill i can't remember the suburb it was down near arncliffe or somewhere like that banks here basically it was tight basically my worst nightmare and i've got to stop saying basically but or essentially point is i got in there it was a brand new trolley I, had to, I left late like not till 9 30 or something because the boss had to go off and buy more trolleys from Bunnings threw everything on it what I've been doing up to that point with the other guys was you could get a row of cases on one trolley um, side by side so you could just mount them twin towers so to speak on this trolley and unfortunately on this morning the uh, stars were not aligned and a few cases of corona went sideways so from now on with that trolley it seems I'm stuck with it it's a bit narrower than the ones we usually use and uh, you can only fit, it's a fascinating dialogue, I'm sure, uh, one tower of cases. So that slows things down a bit. Yeah, I'm learning the ropes uh, a lot faster and a lot more in depth when you're by yourself. That's when the shit really hits the fan. So I'm glad I had that time to help out and be an offsider because I did pick up a bit here and there. But I've been to so many places since then for the first time. And that's the pretty much the hardest part is A... Finding the most efficient and safest way into a dock, and like whether it's out the front or at the back, and you've got to deal with parking and all those sorts of issues. That's the main thing. The same with cookers, really. Not quite as tough because you're not dealing with like twenty places in one mall. Uh, generally, there might be, say, a liquor cellar, and then a pub next door. You might do both, but essentially you're just driving from one spot to another. And the closest I'll be is maybe a block or two. And the other thing is moving the electric pallet jack around inside the back of the truck and getting quite overfilled pallets past another pallet that has also got way too much on it and has stuff sticking out the left sticking out the right and doing that without knocking things off or just ruining the entire show like it's a bit of a dog's breakfast sometimes to be honest and that's yeah I think that'll get easier with time but um, speaking of time I don't know how long I'll be able to keep doing it because I'm still working through an agency And at the moment, it's quite busy. It's peak season. They're actually throwing anyone who turns up every single day, even agency staff, into a draw to win a brand new TV. So that's how desperate they are to keep people on. They do still fire people if you crash into enough things. I had a friend, Arthur, who used to work there. Apparently he got let go. He said for hitting a parked car, I heard from a couple of the other guys who knew him, that he'd also bring back a lot of stock that had been broken and not tell anyone about it, like where it was broken, what customer it was for, that sort of thing. I've had two things like that happen, um, like I said, with the Coronas. And yeah, I wrote down on the paperwork what we lost, what was damaged, and hopefully that all gets back to them and I don't have the same issue and it stops happening. Because with some of the guys i travelled with uh, who'd been doing it for a few years, it certainly wasn't something that really was going down. I think they would really have it just, they're doing it with their eyes closed. Um, and that's a little scary like to get that to imagine myself doing it in 10 years so on the one hand it's like oh god will i still be doing this it's breaking my back i'm getting sunburned i'm getting into all sorts of scrapes and back and forth with some customers want me to come back later or uh, want me to take it all the way down the basement and into the cool room and put them in special like little piles and really the guys try and tell you to look you know you don't do everything for them you get it in there and get out because you are under a little bit of a time crunch. So yeah, you're managing a lot of things at once. You'd think it's, oh yeah, just drive around, throw some beer in a, throw a doorway and that's it. But there's there's a fair bit to it. So there's that, and but so far it's doing okay. And hopefully I'll be doing that for a few months more and maybe next year sometime find something a bit more full-time as long as it keeps up. The only problem is the longer I wait to find another full-time job, because uh, for certain reasons, I can't really do that with this one. They really just sit on the agency staff and cut back when it obviously slows down. The more stale my references get, like Nevese, they're cool. I think Shirley's always given a good reference. I got at least two or three jobs since I've been using her as a reference, the old office manager, and I think Gus has been good with the Glass Group, but I was only there a few months, and I don't know, I'm just worried the longer I wait and don't have a fresh reference, it's not going to help. But what can I do? i just got to keep going. I'm getting ridiculous hours at the moment, so... You know, at least I can pay my credit card, which I'll be doing straight after this. By the way, it is uh, fire season; it's still going. The fires started a lot earlier this year than usual, and they'll probably still be going months from now, unless <laughs> obviously everything's burnt down. There's one happening right now northwest, up near. Where was I? I was just watching a video on ABC. They've lost a few homes, Hawkesbury, somewhere like that, Terry Hills. Um, It's nowhere near me. You're getting a lot of smoke. I had to work one day in like such thick pea soup fog smoke, uh, you couldn't see more than say a block away. And that was on a 40 degree day. Thankfully, some of the customers do take pity on us and throw us a a free Coke or something now and then. But yeah, it was rough. Ironically, I've been posting on Facebook like, oh yeah, you know, your pussies. It's all just, what's everyone going on about? Having trouble breathing and the coughing and the sore eyes. I don't know what you're talking about and almost in a karmic level of retribution, the next day it was like the worst ever smoke day and I had red eyes and (laughs) never got to the point where I was struggling to breathe or cough, but it was like, oh, okay. It was definitely burning the back of my throat a little. So I was like, all right, fine, fire, bad. Anyway, I'm gonna move into the article that's been sitting here for quite a while in front of me, maybe a few months, on the internet even longer. It says it was written on September the 9th, 2010 by Chris Heath, to give a proper um, due. So it's the true story of Gary Faulkner, the man who hunted Osama bin Laden and inspired Nick Cage's Army of One. Let's get into that. It's on GQ. I don't think I'll keep the website up after this. I'm sure it's got plenty of other cool articles. I've got to really cut down. Like I've got 20 tabs up here. Come on. But it looks like an interesting little read. So let's try and uh, work through it. I don't think it's super long. Who knows the way this can go. You might have heard about the spectacular misadventures of one Gary Faulkner. Equipped with little more than a sword he'd built on a home shopping network, a pair of night vision goggles, and the blessings of a vengeful Christian god, the 50-year-old ex-con and his failing kidneys traveled to the most volatile region of Pakistan to capture Osama bin Laden. What's surprising is that it wasn't his first attempt. It was his 11th. Talking to Gary Faulkner's friends, the impression you get is that they had become so accustomed to this one unusual fact about good old Gary, The pursuit that would eventually bring about his weird, jagged flash of fame that had come to seem quite commonplace, routine, unremarkable. Just one more detail about the man they knew. Now, I can't remember when he was actually killed, so I presume this article was written before that. It dates it a little bit. Sounds like a cool dude I could hang out with and have a few beers. He would uh, give you the shirt off his back. This is one of his mates. He could eat prodigious amounts of chicken wings. Hey, it's just like me. He was an inventive contractor and carpenter who excelled at tile countertops, very much not like me. Gary was always joking around. He disappeared every now and then to hunt down Osama bin Laden, so that's a small detail. When it was reported in June that a 50 year old from Greeley, Colorado had been found high in the mountains of Pakistan, near the Afghan border, carrying a sword, dagger, pistol, and night vision equipment, apparently declaring, I think Osama is responsible for bloodshed in the world, and I want to kill him. The romance of such a solo quest struck a chord around the globe. I'm just going to move this closer. There were sceptics too. No wonder it already seemed such a lunatic and improbable tale. But one kind of scepticism, at least, that made no sense at all. The notion that this was an act of publicity seeking. If that had been all Gary Faulkner had wanted, then he would surely have tried to interest the world in his mission before now. This was, after all, his 11th attempt. Gary's youngest brother, Scott, a doctor in Fort Morgan, Colorado, drove him to the Denver airport two weeks earlier, on May the 30th. He was in great spirits. He was excited about his trip. I remember he was looking at his crossbow, deciding whether or not he should take it. Outside the airport, Scott used his phone to snap what he feared might be his last photo of his brother. Turning and grinning to the camera, Scott recalls his farewell. Be safe. Come back to me alive and keep your head low. You got it, Gary replied. Scott began to discover how poorly this last injunction that his brother keep his head low had worked when his phone rang at four in the morning on June 15th. Soon everyone knew, including their mother, who didn't even know Gary was in Pakistan, until Fox News called. Yeah, she told them I know our Gary Faulkner, but he's on dialysis three times a week. Scott, who became the family de facto spokesman, gave interviews explaining that his mission wasn't some whim, but something he had committed to for a long time, and for which he had planned carefully. Over these first few days, the questions Scott had to field most often were, Do you think your brother's crazy? Well, as a physician, I see people with psychological problems all day and I could attest that he did not have psychosis, paranoia, schizophrenia or any of those diagnoses. Yes, it's out of the norm, but that's what Gary does. It was his passion, his calling. It wasn't clear whether Gary had committed or would be charged with a crime in Pakistan, but eventually the family was informed through the State Department that he could come home if they sent $683, of course, to pay for his changed airline ticket. At the airport, Gary addressed the media scrum. What this is about is the American people and the world. We can't let people like this scare us. We don't get scared by people like this. We scare them. And that's what this is about. I believe this is going to go down in history, his other brother Todd tells me. And kids are going to write essays about that 200 years from now. That's a little optimistic. Um, I think this podcast will probably be the last time it gets mentioned. But hey, props to the dude for going for it from the start he wanted to clear up some misconceptions about what he was doing he told everyone who would listen that he never planned to kill osama bin laden but rather to capture him and deliver him to the pakistani authorities it turned out that this information was contained in cnn's original report but the narrative of faulkner as the armed solo avenging assassin was so compelling that this was widely ignored you could almost feel the disappointment when faulkner kept insisting upon his non-lethal intentions because it seemed less melodramatically satisfying and also because it seemed even more impractical, as did Faulkner's further puzzling suggestion that once he had found bin Laden, he had hoped to use his dialysis machine, for if the reports are correct, they share an affliction. That's rather cute. Can you mind just uh, just sit over there, keep your head down, look away, tie yourself up, there you go. I'm just going to use this dialysis machine, Just just bear with me. I can't see how that would have worked out. Again, props for optimism. Faulkner soon flew to New York to appear on the early show The View, Letterman and Fox News, where he seemed second by second to charm, scare and confuse his hosts. A few of his traits became familiar. His habit of referring to his target as Binny Boy, for instance, and more annoyingly his insistence on always referring to the former ruler of Iraq as Saddam who was insane, with a lilt in his voice that suggested... He had just said something both potent and witty. And despite protests from both Letterman and The View, as Faulkner explained his mission from God, he persisted in calling the inhabitants of that country he had just visited "packies." It became clear that he was dancing to the beat of a very different drum, and that in his insistence on being honest to himself, he might almost say anything. This is one of the final questions he was asked when he was interviewed by his local TV station on Denver's Nine News and his answer in which one syllable of their question seemed to trigger a quite unexpected series of revelations. You've been described as everything from a hero to a crackpot. What are you? I'm a little bit of everything. I've done crack, I've done crank, I've done coke, I've done pot. I've done everything in the world out there. You know, I've just been to prison. I've been shipwrecked, blown up, shot, stabbed. My story does not start here. It started when I was five years old, the first time i tried to hotwire a car. What a fucking legend. The day after he returns from New York, I meet Faulkner at the local dialysis centre in Greeley, where he's happy to talk while connected to a machine for four hours, as he must three times every week. <laughs> How is he gonna run around the mountains? That's awesome. But when he arrives he is taken straight to the hospital, with a temperature of hundred and four. It's there the following afternoon we finally begin to talk. His various monitors connected to him and on his chest just below his right shoulder hangs the catheter that is permanently plumbed into his circulatory system. This catheter has become infected. Official diagnosis Bacteremia. Patient's Own Description I'm feeling a little better, but I still feel very loopy. I'm jacked up. It's really getting me on the tizzy, up and down and stuff. I've got so many toxins and poisons in my body, it's just like, wow. I have been having the shakes and shivers. It's almost like convulsionists, a pretty ugly sight. Hey, you know, the champ's down right now, but I'll be back up before the 10 count. Faulkner discovered that his kidneys weren't working last year when he was hiking in the Rockies, checking out some new high-altitude gear he'd gotten for his next trip to Pakistan. People might rush to assume he's somehow paying a rough price for youthful recklessness. He himself says, I've tormented my body, I've been used and abused. There's a saying that a very dear friend of mine has. We were not meant to go to the grave in a pristine, well-kept body, but to come power sliding in, totally spent, and say, Woo, what a ride. Well, I'm still on that ride. Even so, it's likely to have happened anyway. Polycystic kidney disease runs in the family. It's what caused Gary's father's fatal heart attack. When he was 45. Faulkner has plenty of colourful stories about the mischief he would get up to in his youth. He talks about transporting coke, marijuana and pills across the border from Mexico. parting while there were drugs loaded or unloaded from wherever they were hidden. It was just the excitement, the thrill. I was a, an adrenaline junkie. He talks about a bank job. It, he has endless tales about driving too fast, liberating vehicles that belong to others. Uh, most of his convictions involved this. His longest stretch was for four years. I boosted everything. It didn't matter. Dump truck, forklift, cars, boats, whatever. One time he nearly stole a helicopter. He thought better of it when he saw all the gears, but he was tempted. They should never have left the keys in there. It's easy to romanticise this kind of thing, and Faulkner is not immune to that temptation. Part of his patter and self-justification is that it is his experiences in this part of his life that offer him a unique advantage in his missions. When you think like a thief, you are free of all those inflexible military rules and habits. The thief has a different style of approach. Like I say, it's easier for a mouse to get into a castle than a lion. And that's his go-to, steal away with the person as his loot. I'm going in there as a thief, not as a military mind. I'm boosting this guy right out from underneath their noses. But he can also be stern with himself and characterizes those years as wasteful, repetitive, and ultimately fruitless. Yeah, high-speed chases are fun. Breaking into a vault is fun. But everyone at some point pays the piper, and when it ends, it normally ends up ugly. One day I'll overhear him talking to someone he's just met, explaining something of his life and reflecting his newfound celebrity. People say, like, you got a wonderful guy. They don't know the whole story. I was a piece of shit. i ruined people's lives, literally, but I'm honest about it. September 11th took its time to fire Gary up. He remembers reading an article about bin Laden hiding out in the mountains of Pakistan, but he didn't even really know where that was. It was around 2004 that his mission came to him. He just had a dream about hunting down bin Laden, remembers Jim Sage, who's worked on construction jobs with Faulkner over the past decade. In his dream, he was supposed to get there without his feet touching the ground. At first Faulkner took this to mean that he had to go by boat, so he bought a 21-foot yellow and white yacht called the Pina Colada. He had never been in a boat before other than on freshwater lakes and water skiing, but a friend showed him how to put up the sail. Ignoring the Coast Guard's admonitions that his boat was illegal because he had no life jackets, no flares, and so on, he set sail from San Diego. (laughs) He figured he'd head west across the Pacific, and work it out from there. There is documentary evidence that supports much of what Faulkner says he did on future trips, but one wonders whether it can be true that he was really at sea for 22 days without any food before a hurricane threw his boat against a beach halfway down the Baja Peninsula in Mexico. Either way, it was his first failed attempt. The next year he bought another boat, which he was reading in his friend's driveway in Northern California when, in an accident involving the mast, he badly dislocated his shoulder. He decided that there had to be a better way. He sold the boat, bought a plane ticket, and within a week, was in Pakistan for the first time. It was the spring of 2005. So he was in there just a few years after it all went down. He had no idea about anything. I didn't know how hard it was. I didn't know anything about the people, the language. I didn't know a deadly squat. But he had faith that he, what he needed to know would be revealed to him. He travelled from Islamabad to Lahore to Salcott, where he stayed on a military base and was finally directed to a town in a northern tribal area called Gilgit. There he began to explore the remote mountainous hinterland. It's hard to know how to judge Faulkner's account of what he discovered on each Pakistan trip. My hunch is that everything he says happened in terms of his own experience and of where he went and what he did actually did happen. What might be more questionable is the significance of what was happening to others he came across and their relevance to his stated quest. On his first trip, for instance, he says he found himself more or less running for his life, coming down from the mountains, that he lost his pack and his money and his blade, that evening at the Medina Hotel where he was staying in Gilgit, he says that the military guard who was posted outside was shot dead through the head and that he was told that this was done by the same people he assumed who had been chasing him. He also says that he found something encouraging in this town of events. I thought it was pretty cool myself because I shook the tree and at least I got a response. Yeah. Okay. Stretching there for what you'd call pretty cool. Getting some guy's head shot, but alright. He made four other similar visits before his most recent trip to Pakistan. There were attempts Numbers 4, 5, 9, and 10. He describes them to me in some detail. Recently, he had moved his attention to the mountains west and southwest of Chitral, towards the Afghan border. When pressed on the reasons for such decisions, he generally alludes to an unspecified combination of inside information, local help, and divine guidance. During the first of these Chitral trips, he believes he met a very high-ranking al-Qaeda official, and when he inadvertently shared a car with a man who had a particularly unwelcoming demeanour. That was also when Faulkner says he wandered for days among Al-Qaeda workers up near a cave mouth in disguise and unidentified. There are a lot of people running around with axes and all kinds of stuff, working on cutting down trees and making the new cave. On his second trip, he says that he would sleep up there in the mountains on a bed of pine needles covered up in a rug for days at a time, watching that cave, waiting for Binny Boy. You know, at that point, it was probably still in uh, Pakistan and the well-to-do military suburb of, uh, well, I can't remember, but a long way from a mountain. I visit him again in the hospital the next morning. When I walk in, he is lying on his back with his eyes closed, headphones on. He's listening to Nickelback on the pink iPod shuffle he had with him in Pakistan. Also on the playlist is Bon Jovi, The Eagles, The Zac Brown Band, and He says that there's another song he likes a lot, Voice of Truth, by the Christian rock group Casting Crowns, about having the faith to step out of a boat on top of the waves. It's not like I'm in it for the money, he says. I'm in it f- because of my faith. And that's where he's at too. So it's the two titans of their faith. He stood up on a world platform and made his announcement. I stood up on a world platform and made my announcement. And we're getting ready to go toe to toe. A little bit of back and forth here. Do you think Osama is fundamentally evil? Absolutely, yeah. There's no doubt. His God is actually Satan. Mine's the living God. Did God choose you for this? Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm always wondering, why did you pick me instead of somebody else? And why do you think he did? Because I'm the only one crazy enough to do it. Can't make this up. Faulkner is feeling better today, though he says, I can still smell the toxins I've been sweating out of my body. He crows about the shower he had the previous night. His first since last December. I flooded that thing. I didn't care. It felt so good. Today he'll be discharged. A nurse comes in and takes him through a medical summary prior to his release. She reads a bunch of stuff in medical terms that I can't pronounce. I probably could, but my mouth is getting very cottony, so it's gonna stay on the screen. We'll go with PKD, polycystic kidney disease, hypertension, anemia. She says that aside from dialysis, the recommendation is for normal activity, whatever normal is. Before he leaves the hospital, he orders lunch and eats it in his beta cheeseburger with olives, mustard, and thousand island dressing with some cottage cheese and fresh fruit on the side. I don't want french fries because of the potassium. He talks about moving to a remote new home that has been found for him and about his plans to get a wolf the following week. He says he'll train it by walking the property's perimeter over and over. And he had a wolf once before when he was married. She was called Jessie. She ran away while he was in prison. Aww. I travel around Colorado, just crisscrossing the Rockies, visiting friends. On the warm afternoon of July the 4th in a trailer park in Orchard Massa on the south side of the Grand Junction, an extended family are celebrating among them Darren, Paredes, his mother, esther and her brother tony all close friends of gary man he has a spirit says darren it's hard to be down around him they reminisce about the firework fight they had on a previous july 4th and tony points with pride to a scar on his torso from a firework of gary's he says gary likes to come to his house and watch shows like survivor man tony gave him his pig sticker the knife he was found with in pakistan i got it at a pawn shop It cost me like eight bucks he liked it and i was like you know what go get bin laden Darren says "I like to all go to the or you can eat buffalo wings at the new plantation restaurant in Evans, and how sometimes they'd go through about six buckets, 60 wings each. Damn, those are my kind of guys. When the local newspaper in Grand Junction, the Daily Sentinel, compared Gary to Forrest Gum, Esther was so incensed, she phoned them up. How dare you call my friend that? You guys don't know him. I don't know why I made it sound southern, it's Colorado, but hey, I'm just riffing here. Her daughter, Kaya, wanders in. She's 10. She loves Gary, says Esther. She got mad at him and on TV. The jerks and they're stupid, says Kaya. They were talking about Gary. I ask her what he's like. He's a nice guy. He's funny. He's cool. That's the 10-year-old, I guess. I met two other friends, Jen Oliver and Peggy Gates, at Peggy's home in Golden. It was Jen he was staying with when he was diagnosed with kidney disease. Both of them have had Gary living with them while he worked on their houses. It takes me a while to realise this, but for most of the last 15 years, he was technically homeless, living on the site of whatever job he was doing. It was while watching Knife Show on TV with Jen and her husband, that Gary spotted the $300 samurai sword. I ask what he's like as a house guest. He's entertainment plus, says Jen. Sometimes you're just happy when he falls asleep, Peggy says laughing. Both would ferry him down the mountain to Denver in the early morning for dialysis. They say that he seemed fine about his kidney problem, but then it really hit him, the reality of a life like this with no home, no savings, and little more than $449 a month of disability with a few food stamps. They thought he couldn't go back to Pakistan, but it was Peggy who ended up buying his $1,700 plane ticket... Money she owed him for work on the house. I didn't think he would come back this time, says Jen. I thought it was death for sure, but he was totally prepared for death. So far, three of Faulkner's eleven attempts, including six, seven and eight, have not been mentioned. None of these involves a successful visit to Pakistan. Number eight faltered in the place that sometimes seems a rapacious machine invented purely to suck down well-intentioned plans. Las Vegas. Each time he wanted to fly to Pakistan, Faulkner had to visit Los Angeles to apply for a visa, In 2008 January, he decided to do the trip by road accompanied by his friend Tony Montana (laughs) and a mate they knew as Pickles. They left on Friday just after they'd been paid. On the way, they decided to stop off in Las Vegas. That was that. I still don't remember all of Vegas, Gary says. I forgot the whole reason why I was going out that way anyway. No Los Angeles, no visa. Convinced that he would get in anyhow, he still made his scheduled flight. There he was sternly informed that he would take the next plane home. Yeah, he kind of needed the paperwork. Sorry, dude. Attempts... Six and seven were failures of a different kind. Faulkner's vision that his feet wouldn't touch the ground led him to the certainty that on his next expedition to Pakistan he would approach bin Laden in a new way by hang glider. He also decided that the perfect and proper place to try out such a hang glider would be Israel. Isn't that a little far from Afghanistan? Okay. I gotta test it somewhere, so in my mind, well, if I go to Israel, Dead Sea, hit the water, you float. He found a hang glider for $500. Cut it up into six foot pieces that would fit into a long ski bag. Crafted brackets to reassemble it using the copper tubes from a cabin he was renovating at the time. In Israel, in September 2006, he put it back together and prepared to launch himself off a cliff. he had never flown a hang glider in his life. I just figured everything else I'd ever done was the same. Jump on and go for the ride. The ride was short. Three seconds later, he had several broken ribs and a broken shoulder. Damn, I crashed hard. I still feel that one. (laughs) <laughs> oh, God. A sensible man might have decided to hang- put hang gliding behind him. Faulkner asked a local hostel to store his flying machine until he could return. He was back the following August. This time he decided he should take off much closer to the water. There was maybe 20 feet between him and the water when he launched himself. You think I could hit the water? Not on your life. I was dragged and smashed and beat down by the rocks. I ripped up my shins this time. He undid his harness, left the remains of his glider on the rocks and hobbled the road i normally give stuff two tries he explained and if it doesn't work by the second i'm through as far as faulkner is concerned analyzing the tactical sense or practicality of his plans is when it comes down to it besides the point he's on a mission from god he follows his heart not his mind if you got the heart to go out and do something you do it if you have a mind to go out and do something you're going to be in trouble because your mind is going to try and calculate and figure things out and god has told him that he is the man to do this I'm the one that the Lord put his finger on and said, you're it. I accept to take that responsibility all the way to the grave with me if I have to. When you really look at this story, you stop and you think, okay, here's this guy now. Is he crazy? Is he a fool? Or What's happening? People still don't get the real gist of what's happening. God's making a statement. It isn't me. I'm just doing what I'm programmed to do through my faith. Nothing is actually a thought process. It's emotion out of my heart. Because when I start thinking about stuff, I get confused. I don't have a clue. And I'll be the first to say it. He's like a real life Peter Griffin on acid. I love it. He knows some people think he has a death wish. I don't have a death wish. What I do have is a wish to be obedient and do what I'm designed to do. Everyone's designed to do something. Other people are like, oh, I'd be scared to go there. He grins. That's why you're not going there. There is little reason for those who do not share Faulkner's faith to accept his interpretation of what has happened or what will happen. But if you suspect he is simply some kind of fantasist, I think you are wrong. Though he sometimes seems prone to elaboration, his specific accounts of events over a period of time are generally consistent, down to small details. His passport confirms that he made these trips, and an unedited sampling of his recent emails shows that his current account of what he was up to matches what he wrote at the time. "'I'm a very bold person, and I can be a little obnoxious,' he says. "'And I can be a little bit boastful sometimes, too. "'But I'm true to my faith, and I'm true to my God and my heart. "'I can't be anything else. "'If you don't want to hear the answer, don't ask. "'I'll try and be nice and gentle as much as I can, "'but there's a point where, you know what? Parole's denied.'" On his last trip, he flew to Islamabad, carrying with him a new pig sticker, a few light clothes, some mountaineering pants, meant to be worn over clothing to keep the wind off. He didn't use a tent his King James Bible, a copy of Andrew Womack's A Better Way to Pray, and the Liberty Dollar he has taken on all his travels for many years. In Pakistan, he was reunited with the rest of his equipment, the Night Vision Scope, a Night Hawk that he'd originally bought at a Big Five in Greeley, his Samurai Sword, his Smith & Wesson handcuffs, a 30 cal Chinese pistol that carried eight rounds and had no safety. He picked up this gun on a previous visit. The first time he mentions it, he tells me that he bought it for about $100 in Chitral in the back alley. But another time, when he is trying to impress on me that he has more informal encouragement from the authorities than he is able to let on, he says, I mean, how do you think I got the gun? Yeah, we tell everybody it was a back alley and stuff, but a very special person delivered that gun to me, as a matter of fact. she. this is a brand new gun. I don't know why i him sound black now, but just go with it. He checked into room four of the Ishpada Inn on the Bamboret Valley, south of Chitral. He spent some of the first week making preparations. But when he finally tried to climb towards the cave where he believed bin Laden was now hiding, he found the strength lacking. He called Jen. He came down, she says. He goes, well, I can't do it. I tried to do it. I can't go up there. I'm real weak now. He'd also come to realise that Pakistan wasn't without medical resources. So he asked her to research, not just dialysis, but also kidney transplants. She mailed him back a number of options. The closest centre was the Riemann Medical Institute in Hyderabad, Peshawar, So he took an all-day bus ride there and got two hours of dialysis. On his return, after a day in which he says maybe 70 Al-Qaeda members came down from the mountain to threaten the locals, he emailed her with a requested update on his physical, mental, and spiritual well-being. This is actually the email. I'm physically okay, mentally demented, spiritually I'm on fire. I went to an Al-Qaeda meeting at the PTDC. They told the elders that they now have the North Hillside and everybody's freaked out because they don't know what is going on. Next, well, I'll have to get ready to go. Gary says as he was told that Al-Qaeda had not only noticed him, but photographed him and was circulating his picture. After dark that night, believing they were soon coming to get him, he headed up the mountain. He heard barking, he believes, revealed Al-Qaeda's movement through a nearby ravine. They were searching for him, and the military police were searching too. It's old school for me, because I used to be a thief, so night time is my time. I laugh. Here I am in the middle. They got a squeeze play going on, and once again I slipped away in the night. He laughs. I love it. I'm glad that I was a criminal. See, I don't know how much of that is true, but i got to believe that some of it, like he believed that was going on and he believed the years of running around as a cat burglar or whatever he was um, helped him sneak out. So, sure. It could be. That's a pretty crazy place for a crazy guy and it all sounds like he got very lucky to um, get away with it. At least surviving, if not much else. At daybreak, what would... Be portrayed in press reports as his capture by the government took place, though he insists that he simply stepped out from where he had been hiding and flagged two policemen walking below. Faulkner is likewise convinced that he connived with the police to put on a show that he was being arrested so that no one who had helped him would be implicated. We came up with a plan. Everyone played it off cool. They did it by the book to make it look like an arrest. They had me blindfolded and a hood on. The whole works, but that was also at my request. When I suggest that some people may wonder, just because this is what Gary thought was going on, whether it really was, he replies, well, what do I give a shit about what anyone thinks? Hey, kiss my ass, I'm the one who was there. In support of his narrative, he points out that they didn't take his gun. As he sees it, the custody he was in until he left the country was part of the same continuing act of theatre by authorities who tacitly endorsed and supported his actions and intentions. He points out that while he was in their care, they gave him Pizza Hut pizza. If one were making a bad biopic, there are a few obvious moments of redemption and revelation one might choose to depict. The first came when he was five. Faulkner maintains that he had the specific vision that set him upon this path before his sixth birthday. It would happen over and over. There were these monsters coming at him, well, what seemed like monsters to a five-year-old, though he now recognises them as men, dressed as though they were in the Himalayan foothills. He told his mother that these creatures were trying to kill him, one day, the Faulkner family went to the carnival, and Gary got a balloon on a stick. When the balloon popped, leaving nothing but the stick, he says that his mother said to him, "'Here, this is your sword, when they come at you again, you'd kill them.'" The next time they came at him, he wielded his sword, and he killed every single one of them, and he says that his mother saw him do that, and that she told him he had seemed like a real man with a real sword. He believes this is the dream he had been living out, and the search he had been on ever since. In his vision, after the bad people had been conquered, he would find himself in a cave. Once I get up to the cave, then the earthquake hits. That's how people would know he's being captured around the world without hearing the report. I'm standing here in the cave watching it, and now I'm seeing the dirt and the rocks and everything come crashing down. I never actually saw a Benny boy. He's in the cave, but he's trapped because it all caves in on him. This is what you saw when you were five. Yeah, exactly. I still feel it. You experienced something and you know you were there. But this is so much far beyond that. It's like you read a book, and then all of a sudden the movie comes out. Now you see all the colour and the people and everything else. I know, it sounds strange. So you're just making the movie out of a book you've already read. Right, see? I already know how it ends, because I read the book. I know the ending of this, and that's why I'm so positive and I'm so determined, without that fear. It's incredible. So specifically, do you really believe that's how it'll end? That you won't lead him out, you'll just be there, and then the cave will collapse yeah then the people will come up and dig him out it's already been prepared everything is set and ready to go i just got to get there they know the signal and they know what to look for and then they'll drag him down he won't be killed by the collapsing cave no he's just going to be trapped in there he's going to be trapped in there because he can't die in a battle i tried to discuss this with his mother she shrugs he never mentioned it so i ask her whether there was any clear ambition or calling that gary seemed to have when he was a young child She allows that there was. He wanted to be a fireman. We made some plans to meet up again, but instead Faulkner heads east in his brother Scott's truck to help his niece Nikki, who's moving to Massachusetts. I catch up with him in a motel there, fresh out of the bath. He sits talking to me in nothing but a towel, his twin green and blue catheter nozzles hanging down his chest. He tells me that he has hurt his right foot on a curb, but tomorrow he'll change his mind and diagnose it as gout caused by the pizza he ordered with everything on it. On the bedside table is a prescription bottle. He says someone, the maid, he suspects, has helped themselves to his medical marijuana. I'm a sativa guy, not an indica guy, he tells me. Neil searched at the end of his recent Pakistan adventure. Aside from his weapon, they found a small amount of hash. Gary's unlicensed Glock 40 cow and his hollow point bullets are in his day bag. There's a fairly long list of rules Gary issues seat belts, for instance, also taxes. The next, he's just like the guy from the zombie land with the rules. It's pretty cool. Except for the whole Bible thing, but you know, no one's perfect. After he has dialysis at West Springfield, we he head south in Scott's truck, stopping when he needs something to drink because his hand is cramping from lack of fluids. Wherever we eat, he flirts shamelessly with the waitress. I'm a dog, at least I'm honest about it. He'll repeat at such times. He has told me that he doesn't particularly care for the media nickname that seems to have stuck. Rocky Mountain Rambo. But I'm not so sure. When I see him write down his name for strangers, he'll write Rocky Mountain Rambo beneath it. And when there's a problem finding a New York hotel reservation, he wonders aloud whether he might have booked under the name Rocky Mountain Rambo. On the road, having to raise even his unbridled voice over the thumping of the rain on the truck, he suddenly starts to tell me about the whippings his father used to give him. When it comes to the moment in the story where he finally stands up to his father, he still gets belted one more time, but then tells his father, if you ever touch me again, I'm going to cut your throat in your sleep. And says how much better the relationship was from that day on. Oh, that's so wholesome. He follows this with the strange statement. I think he actually wanted to create me like this. Gary says that day, the day he stood up to his father, was the day he decided something. I'm not going to put up with anybody's bullshit, he says. From that day on, I was hell on wheels. I was purposely looking for this moment, but I was also looking for what would make me afraid. I still haven't found it. That's why I'm going to go. Do what I do, no fear. These are not necessarily the words you want to hear from a man behind the wheel of a truck on a freeway on a rainy night with an unlicensed gun in a bag beside him who has just had a rum and coke at the Olive Garden. But I think nonetheless they explain something about such a man. All the time Faulkner returns to the same theme. I can't wait to get back and finish the mission, he says. I'm tired, but I have one more rodeo to go. He constantly talks about the money he needs to buy equipment for his return to Pakistan. People don't realise this ain't over. we still got to finish this. If i got to go boost a bank, I'm going after this guy. There's nothing that he's going to stop my ass from getting this dude. A bit bit of a typo there, but uh, I'll just keep it in. Two sensible ways of judging the sincerity of someone's beliefs are by how consistently they are held over a long period of time and by what someone is prepared to sacrifice for them. By these standards, Faulkner scores well. In other counts, if wanted to play up Gary Faulkner's heroism, or heroism, I would point out that his claim that he's betting his life on what he believes is quite probably true. If I wanted to make him seem unlikable, I could detail some of his less anchored rants, full of anger and misogyny. For instance, his account of his murderous state of mind during a bitter dispute with his sister. As God is my witness, I wanted to break that bitch's neck. If I'd have got hold of her neck, I'd have a place where I was going to put the body. If I wanted to bolster his credibility, I would quote from the New York Times blog that cited Pentagon sources and suggested that Faulkner may very well turn out to be looking in the right place. And if I wanted to convince most people that he was crazy beyond belief, then perhaps all I would have to do is to portray what he considers sensitive operational secrets about his forthcoming twelfth and final attempt, a plan that makes hang gliding your way into Pakistani tribal areas seem both practical and foolproof by comparison. I would also explain how he has a fixed date by which this must be achieved, before Al-Qaeda detonates a small nuclear device at Mecca unleashes a global holy war of unimaginable proportions upon us all. And then perhaps I might mention how after the successful resolution of his mission, he believes that he will become the first king of a Central American nation. Wow. No, he's not crazy at all. He's just an awesome, likeable dude. Except for all the sister killing. But there is little point. For him, ultimately, that is not about strategy or sanity or feasibility or probability. It's about faith. And faith cannot be bought by argument, and when faced with doubt and scorn, it often thrives. Its only repudiation is disbelief, and whatever you choose to believe or disbelieve, Gary Faulkner intends to continue as he has. The thing I'm about to do is the least likely. The most improbable, unlikely, outrageous, crazier-than-hell idea is the one that will get my mission accomplished, and that is sweet. I giggle to myself. Gary Faulkner believes that by the time this article is published, he'll be triumphantly completing his mission in the rubble, of a cave in northwest Pakistan. If he fails, it will be one more victory for rationality. One more victory for everyone who likes to see the world carry on spinning evenly and predictably. One more victory for common sense. It will be one more sad victory for all of us who never really tried. So thanks, Chris Heath. That was an interesting little uh, slice of life in the world of Gary Faulkner i do plan to follow up on this dude because obviously that was me 10 years ago two weeks off 10 years ago and since well not since it was written because obviously that was september but you know what i mean and it's pretty interesting stuff so i want to see what's happened since I'll do a follow-up but right now it's like 40 degrees at 10 o'clock at night i wake up in like five hours so yeah i think i'm gonna call it thanks for sticking with me if you have i love you all i bid you adieu and peace out